are getting ready to drive off the edge of the map. Okay, remember that first week we had the 10 columns of the history? Well, we're in column 10 this morning, which is the restoration. We'll get Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, and then we have, remember, how does the Jewish Bible and the Protestant Bible end with Malachi? And then we're still 400 and something years from the time of Jesus, which will take us into the Greek period, the Maccabean Revolt, the Hasmonean period, the Herodian period with the coming of Rome. And so the next two weeks we'll do that. But one more from our Old Testament. Where we are in this deal, the last two weeks we've kind of looked at the destruction of the nation of Israel, uh, the period known as the Babylonian exile, which is a kind of interesting period because it's a period that is actually skipped within the historical narratives. Kings and Chronicles, which are the two Old Testament histories that are in the Old Testament, uh, neither one covered. They just sort of end with the destruction and then kind of the story picks up when they come back. But we were able to look and kind of lift the curtain and see a little bit of what was going on there. Uh, last week we ended by looking at two groups that shaped the future. Remember what they were? The ones that stayed and the ones that left. Okay, The ones that went into exile and then returned. And uh, what's interesting is, is what and this sort of sets up things in the future. The group that leaves is anti-Babylonian. Can you understand why? Since the Babylonians basically destroyed their entire world. As we're going to see today, they are incredibly pro-Persian because it's the Persian Empire that by imperial decree allows them to go home, allows them to rebuild, and uh, get this, pays the tab. And then even pays the tab for the continuing of the temple and he does a lot of other things, and we have the, the records of that. Uh, we have in, in Hebrew, and if you get out there in the Google, you'll see these terms. The Gola means exiles, but it's a particular group. It's the exiles who went away and then came back. So it's not the group that stayed in Babylon, which is the vast majority. It's not the group in Egypt. It's not the group wherever. That little group, small group, just a few thousand to go and come back, or the Gola. The other is Am, Hebrew for, remember? People, Hamaretz, the land, the people of the land. So last week we talked about why there would be some tension uh, between these two groups. Basically, the people of the land, when the Gola is taken awake, they're going, ooh, all this vacant property. It is now ours, and we're going to work for the Babylonians, and we didn't support the revolt. You guys are just stupid to do that. And so there's a lot of tension. Today we're going to see where those chickens come to rest. They are pro-Babylonian because they actually benefit from the Babylonian destruction. They get the property, and they get jobs, and they step right in. And they're not going to be happy with the Persian change because everything they got is going to be taken away from them by the Persians. So two groups, both Jewish, very, very different agendas. Uh, today we want to look at the event that lays the foundation for Second Temple Judaism, um, which is in fact the return of the exiles. This begins the process. The process is going to accelerate with the coming of uh, Alexander the Great, the Hasmonean period, the revolt, down to Herod and stuff. But the foundations are laid here. Um, now, one of the remarkable things about this whole story is the fact that Israel even survived the exile at all. How many countries in the ancient world were destroyed and taken to exile by another country, came back and 2,000 years later is still here? One. 
okay? One. So it is remarkable that they actually did that, that they did come back, and you know, a few nations did that. Now, people who study this have identified that there are a particularly unique set of factors that seem to set things in place so that the Jews actually survive the exile and come back even stronger. One, all of our resources, and not to do the little fine print there, two places in 2 Kings, one in Jeremiah, one in, what's the third line? Ezekiel, and then Ezra all agree, unlike previous exiles, when the northern kingdom was taken to exile, this was the policy of Assyria. Scatter them so they can't get organized. Babylon said, no, we're going to take them all, we're going to put them in one location. Is that a positive if you're a Jew? It's a wonderful positive. It's going to allow them to stay together and they're going to have continuity of community. Huge factor. Second, the king and the key leaders were with them in exile. And remember, we looked at the Babylonian records. We actually have records of the Babylonians saying that they took care of the king, the king's son, and the king's courtiers. So this leadership cadre is actually in the palace in Babylon being cared for, kind of a king-to-king -king courtesy kind of thing. Uh, and again, not only do we have continuity of community, we have continuity of leadership. So that this king who goes into exile, who does not come back, two of his sons are going to bring the first two groups of exiles back. So there's continuity there. Third, uh, they were able to take their written traditions with them. Remember we looked at th this whole business of writing being something that was becoming common is happening just before the exile with the reforms of Josiah. Hezekiah earlier, but the reforms of Josiah. So writing and the preservation and the first writing prophets and references to writing like in Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah, all of this is just beginning to happen, which is wonderful timing because if you're going to lose everything else, if you're going to lose your nation, your independence, your leadership, your temple, all that, what a gift. We can take our traditions with us in written form. 200 years earlier, they would not have been able to do that, but they did. And so they're allowed to preserve their identity and their faith. So they've got continuity of community, continuity of leadership, and they've got their traditions being pres preserved. Also, we know that there is continuity of prophecy. Uh, the prophets are very active in the period just before the exile, like 150, 200 years before. We've got Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah, we know, and we looked at some of this last week, is active for the first 10 years of the exile before he's taken into Egypt by a group that assassinates the Babylonian governor. Ezekiel continues for about 30 years. Now, the exile is considered to be roughly 70 years. So Ezekiel actually lives for the first half of it. We have another prophet. He's got many names. It's called, uh, it's basically his oracles are found in Isaiah 40 through 55. Sometimes you heard of second Isaiah, Deuter-Isaiah, Isaiah of the exile, all the same. Living about 200 years after the prophet whose name is given to the book, clearly dating from about the time the exile comes to an end, and we'll be looking at his stuff a lot this morning. And his message is not one of judgment, but is one of hope. So we have prophets at the beginning of the exile. We have prophets at the end of the exile. There's no reason to believe that there weren't prophets during the exile. We just don't know who they were. Not least of all is Persian policy, which we actually have uh, preserved. And uh, the, the masterpiece of it is actually in the British Museum. It's interesting. Everything in the Middle East is either in Paris or London. 
Does it tell you anything? Yeah, we just kind of hauled it off. Uh, Persian policy authorizes and supports the return of the exiles. And this is the first country to do this. Uh, it's a very enlightened kind of policy, as well as the rebuilding of Jerusalem. One more factor, continuity of community, continuity of leadership. Our traditions are preserved. We've got prophets speaking to us about God's guidance through all of this. We have a new world power coming in that's basically going to empower and finance our return. But the last one is probably the most key. It's theological. And this is amazing. The destruction of Jerusalem and Israel is not seen to the Jews, this is very clear as they come back, as a sign of God's weakness or that another God was stronger. This is the way it usually operated in the ancient world. You had a war with another kingdom and they destroyed you. The theory was their God is stronger than your God. And they take all of your idols or your religious paraphernalia and they put it in the temple of their God. So everything that was in the temple is taken and put in Babylon in the, for the god Marduk. And we actually have records of them actually getting it back out and taking it back home. Now, that's standard procedure. You know? It's like my dad can whip your dad. Okay? My god can whip your god. You lose a war, you're a loser. Your god's a loser. Okay? Now, to the contrary, in an unprecedented theological twist we have never seen before, the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem is seen not as a sign of God's weakness, but as God's strength. Isn't that amazing that they would think in these terms? The horrific events occurred because God punished Israel for its sin. You familiar with that thinking? Okay. Now, if you unpack that, it is nothing short of revolutionary. That means that God was actually in control of these events. God was using the foreign nations and the foreign armies to carry out God's plans. If God punished us, then the destruction of temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and everything we went through is not that God is weak, but that God is in control. And if that's true, that's a whole different future you're looking at. Because now this same God is active on the world stage orchestrating the return of the exiles, orchestrating forgiveness, orchestrating restoration of Jerusalem and the nation. This clearly comes out particularly with a prophet who is active right as Cyrus of Persia comes to the throne. This is Isaiah the exile. He appears near the end of the Babylon deal. Chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, so the voice of God speaking through the prophet, who says to Jerusalem, it shall be rebuilt. It shall be inhabited. Now remember, for the last 70 years, all the archaeology indicates that up at Mitzpah and the northern area just north of Jerusalem and other areas, there is Jewish population. The city of Jerusalem has been abandoned for 70 years. It's basically just a ruin. There's no evidence that anybody lived there. It shall be rebuilt. It shall be inhabited. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Who says to Cyrus? Whoa. This is the God of Israel saying to the first emperor, Cyrus the first, Cyrus the great, the founder of the, uh, the Persian Empire. He is my shepherd. In another place he says, he is my Messiah. He is my anointed. He will carry out all my purpose. 
So when, when, when Cyrus is doing all this stuff, allowing everybody to go home, financing, rebuilding, what is, what is Cyrus really doing? He's carrying out the will of God. Did you know that Cyrus actually says that himself? Of course, the God for him is Marduk, but he actually says the exact same thing. God is doing a new thing in their midst. God is acting to restore Israel. Just look at some of the passages from this prophet. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Can you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, the rivers, the desert. Now make a way in the wilderness. What does that remind you of? Exodus. Okay. This prophet uses Exodus imagery. Just as God brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the promised land, the same God will bring the children of Israel out of Babylon, another Egypt, against another Pharaoh, back into the promised land. Isaiah 40. Uh, if you like Handel's Messiah, you know these words. Comfort, oh, was it comfort ye or comfort ye in the Messiah? My people, says your Lord, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. Forgiveness for any sins done. She has paid her penalty. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Don't care what happened, its slate is clean. 43, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring, you I'll bring your offspring from the east. And where would that be? Babylon. Babylon. From the west, I will gather you. Where would that be? Egypt. Egypt. I will say to the north, give them up. Yeah, it's tricky. That's the 10 northern tribes that was taken 200 years ago up to Nineveh, okay? And to the south. We don't even know who's in the south, but do you get the idea? I don't care where you are in the compass, you're coming home. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, the exiles who return have got a daunting task. You know, are they going to step into an established area? Well, it may be established, but they don't like the people who have established it. So they've got a double problem. One is they've got to rebuild their society, and two, they've got to deal with the people who've been there for the last 70 years. So they've got to rebuild the city walls. The exiles, the Gola, are going to center themselves in Jerusalem. The Hamarites have not. They've been up north at Mitzvah in the Babylonian headquarters there. So they're going to go into this area where nothing has basically happened for 70 years. They're going to reconstitute the community. They've got to deal with those who remain in Judea. Now, here's the interesting part. The people who remained, the Hamarites, probably outnumber the exiles 20 to 1, to 50 to 1, depending on the archaeologists you talk to. Now, that's a bit of an issue. Little tiny group coming back, very, very different from the group that's there, and the group that's there outnumbers you many-fold. Okay? That's going to set some things in play. Um, the rebuilding of the temple takes 20 years. Stops, st you know, starts, stops, starts, stops. There's some reasons for that. We'll look at one of them. Uh, Rebuilding Jerusalem, nearly 100 years. And this is the walls. Now, if you don't have walls, what's the problem? No security. You're not safe. Anybody can attack your city. So walls are very, very critical. They're going to rebuild the temple first, but the walls simply do not get done. Uh, in this new society, the temple will become the center of the life, and we know this from the ear of Jesus, that, that things center around the temple. By the way, even more so than the first temple. 
The second temple plays a much more central role in the life of Israel than the temple of Solomon ever did. I mean, it just goes center place. Uh, we're going to have a theocracy. Do we have kings afterwards? No more kings. Kings are toast. They're gone. Okay. Another country rules. And you're allowed to have some amount of participation in that. And if you don't have a political leader, who is your leader? The priests. So this is going to be a theocracy. You're also going to have a, a second focus. It's going to, uh, something the exiles brought back with them. This is a depiction of Ezra. Now, what's he clutching? They go into exile with traditions. They come back from exile with Torah. There's a difference. The traditions have been edited. So the traditions become the Pentateuch. And the prophets who were people who had writings and had statements that nobody listened to because they just didn't believe them. 2020 hindsight, maybe Jeremiah knew what he was talking about. Maybe Amos, maybe Hosea. And all of a sudden these things are, are collected. We have uh, the prophets become a set of writings. There's even one group that's called the Twelve. You heard of that? Simply called the Twelve. In the Jewish Bible, it's still the Twelve. The Minor Prophets. It, it's a writing. You know, Hosea. Amos, Micah, Joel, on down. So they've got the Torah. All of our sources indicate that the return of the exiles and the restoration is authorized, supported, financed, not just initially, but on a continuing basis by the Persian Empire. We know this, first of all, from Ezra. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, right out of the chute, just initially, he's just become emperor, He's founded the, the Persian Empire, and in that first year, he sent a herald throughout his kingdom and also a written, written edict. You know, we're going to cover it both ways. It's in writing and it's oral. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has charged me. It's interesting. In, in, in the document we have from Cyrus, he says the exact same thing, except substitute for the God of heaven, Marduk, his God, to build him a house at Jerusalem and Judea. Any of those among you who are of his people are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem and Judea. And then there's a part after that. Rebuild talks about, and we're going to finance this. The empire will finance part of it, and you can also give offerings to that. Um, we have this surviving record. This is the British Museum. Have any of you all seen that before, the Cyrus Cylinder? It's actually, it's not, it's not as big as it looks. It's about like this. It's a remarkable document. It was probably one of many that was created and then passed around the empire. So remember when it said that he had a herald and he had the, a written document? This, this is the written document. Uh, it's known as the Cyrus Cylinder. This is uh, just a little quotation from it. The sacred centers on the other side of the Tigris. Now, his empire is in the east. So the other side of the Tigris would be on the west, the Levant, Palestine, whose sanctuaries have been abandoned for a long time. Can you think of one? Okay. I returned the images of their gods who had resided in Babylon to their places, whatever religious objects they had. I let them dwell in eternal abodes. In other words, they're going back to their old place. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned them to their dwellings. This is imperial policy of the Persian Empire. Uh, to allow the exiles to return to their homes, to finance the rebuilding of walls and temples, uh, continuing financial support for the temple states, and to even help compile legal codes. Now, this sidebar, can you think why a Persian emperor might want to do this 
in, in Jerusalem? What is Jerusalem strategically for you as the emperor of the Persian Empire? It's your western flank. You want a strong border. Somebody comes roaring out with conquest in their mind. Would you like somebody to slow them down just a little bit? Okay. So you're going to want to have strong kingdoms on the border. Cyrus and the other leaders, uh, and by the way, it's very spotty. Cyrus, yes. Darius, yes. Next emperor, no. No support. The emperor after that, Artaxerxes, yes. But several of the emperors support this. They don't do it just for Jews. They do it for imperial policy across the empire. This is a remarkable statue. This is now actually in the Vatican Museum. And what it basically is, is it's an Egyptian statue, and it talks about a priest, Ujahoresneth. I don't even know if that's close. <laughs> He's empowered to carry out item by item all the reforms that Ezra and Nehemiah carry out in Judea. We also have another document from Syria where the, Babylon, the Persian king authorizes a priest, always a priest, in Syria to carry out reforms in Syria. So this is not just for the Jews. This is empire-wide. Uh, so best we can reconstruct, and admittedly there may be pieces we don't know about, there are at least four, three, at least, waves of immigrants that have come back, maybe four. And it's going to be over a 150-year period. They don't just come back. They come back in waves, and there's big, huge gaps in between. Uh, 538, this is when Cyrus ascends the throne. He issues his edict. Immediately, there's a guy named Sheshbazer. Say that four <laughs> times fast. He's described as a prince of Judah. Now, his name, interestingly enough, Sheshbazer is actually Babylonian. So he's picked up a Babylonian name during this period. But what would it mean to be a prince of Judah? Think about that. He's going to bring the first wave of exiles back, Ezra 8. King Cyrus of Persia had them released into the charge of Sheshbazer, a prince of Judah. All these Sheshbazer brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so Ezra narrates that story. Now, the book of Ezra indicates, and he has, you know, so many thousand over here, so many thousand over there, so many thousand. And if you run the math, it's 50,000 exiles, which is a problematic number. Now, we don't know, is this just the first group? Or is it all the groups together over 150 years? The problem is the number 50,000 won't hold. If you cut it to five, <coughs> maybe. Because archaeologists have excavated the whole area. Here's what we know. The archaeology indicates that during the Persian period, all the way down to the Hasmoneans, all the way down to about the year 150, the population of Jerusalem never passes four to 5,000, and maybe as few as 1,000 to 1,500, depending on which archaeologist you want to go with. The entire province has less than 10,000 people. Often in the Bible, the numbers are symbolic. Um, 50,000 would mean that God's really blessing you, God's member bringing them all home. Well, they didn't all come home. So the initial group returns with the temple vessels. Now, was the Ark of the Covenant in there? No, because it's long gone. Okay. And the things that are listed being taken from the temple to Babylon, it is not listed. The things listed coming back from Babylon, it's not listed. Matter of fact, the Ark of the Covenant is not mentioned in 400-year period. 
best guess is when they built the temple, they didn't really need it anymore, and so it probably fell into disuse. Remember Jeremiah said, even if you found it, you wouldn't want it because it has no significance. They rebuild the altar. Now, this is not the temple, but they, they get the altar working. They resume sacrifices. They laid the foundations of the temple, but then, for a reason we do not understand, everything stops. Maybe they move over to building their own homes. We don't know. Uh, we don't hear anything more about Sheshbazzar, which is interesting. He is prince of Judah. Vanishes. Did he die? Did he go back to bat? We simply don't know. He just simply vanishes. You know. 520, this is 538 to 520, 18 years later, a generation later, we got a new guy, Zerubbabel, with a guy named Joshua. Actually, his name isn't Joshua. His name is Jesus. Yahshua. It's the first time this word occurs. Yahshua, Jesus, is Aramaic for Joshua. And Aramaic's the language they're using now. Zerubbabel is also of the royal Davidic line. He's accompanied by this, this other guy as high priest, Ezra three. Second year after the arrival of the house of God in Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel and Yeshua made a beginning. He appointed the Levites, that's the junior under assistant flunky priests who do all the hard work, to have oversight of the work of the house of the Lord. They took charge of the workers of the house of the Lord. They laid the foundation. I thought that was done 18 years earlier by Sheshbazzar. Well, you know, after 18 years, maybe you need to do some more work or maybe it wasn't completed. But they both work on the foundation. Again, construction stops. This time we know why. And it's an interesting reason why. Do you remember the Am Haaretz? They enter the picture again. Uh, we've got opposition from the people of the land. People of the land offer to help rebuild. You know, you've got the exiles coming back. We're going to rebuild everything. The people who are camped there are going, great, we'll join you in that. And they are simply rebuffed in the most blunt of language. Ezra 2. Let us build with you. This is the Hamaritz. Let us build with you the temple and the city. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him. Didn't it make sense? We're all worshiping the same God. We're all in this together. Um, Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the family in Israel said to them, you shall have no part with us in building a house for our God. We alone will build it to the Lord. Take that. You get a feeling for what's coming? You know what's coming. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of the Judah. This is how they did it. <laughs> you got somebody up on the wall with a big brick. You just take an arrow and you put an arrow through him. That'll slow them down. They made them afraid to build. And so they literally had to post armed guards. And it, it degenerates that far. The same time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and this, this is in the book of Zechariah, this is the first half of the book, not the last half, it's two Zechariahs, first Zechariah, second Zechariah. Haggai and first Zechariah are active at this time. We can date when they start to the year, to the month, to the day. Uh, it's during the time of Joshua and Zerubbabel. They're encouraging the rebuilding of the temple. And by the way, those two, that's all they do. They, they're, they're like one-trick ponies, okay? rebuild the temple. That's the only message they've got. So Ezra 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. Then Zerubbabel and Yeshua uh, set out to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. With them were the prophets of God helping them. So they're all working together on this. 
When the first exiles return, there's an interesting thing going on. It looks like they're trying to recreate, remember the term restoration? If you're going to restore something, it's going to be the way it was. Now, what was life like before? Well, we had a king, didn't we? We had priests, and we had prophets. That's the three tiers of leadership. So if we're going to reconstitute Israel, if we're going to restore it, what do we need? Kings, priests, and prophets. And it's exactly what they try to do. The first two waves are brought by Davidic princes, both apparently descendants of the first king who went, uh, Jehoiakim. You've got high priests, we only know one, Yeshua, and you've got prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Here's the interesting thing. A hundred years later, when Ezra and Nehemiah come, no kings, no prophets. The word is prophecy has ceased in Israel. So what's left? Priests. And we have a theocracy. But in this first generation, those first two waves, they're trying to recreate it, but it's not going to be that. So part of the hope for the return is going to restore the Davidic kingship. This is the, 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 the seed of what is going to become messianic hope that we have a desire for Messiah. As long as you got a king, you don't need messianic hope because you got a king, anointed Messiah. If you don't have a king, you hope for a king, messianic hope. So we see this in Haggai and Zechariah, both of whom, by the way, think this second guy is Zerubbabel. They think he's it. Zerubbabel is the Messiah. He is the anointed who's going to reestablish kingship. So Haggai 2. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now the key phrase there is signet ring. Who wears the signet ring? The king with the seal. The king's seal but servant and chosen also. Zechariah 6. There is a man whose name is Branch. Where have you heard that term before, Branch? Isaiah, there is a branch that stems from the root of Jesse. We do it every Christmas time. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he that shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear royal honor. He shall sit and rule on his throne. So, this is what he is. Now, who would that be? That would be a Davidic, messianic, kingly figure. So, with encouragement, it still takes them. You know, remember Russia used to have the famous five-year plans? Yeah, they had their five-year plan. It takes five years to rebuild the temple. And this is where it really gets interesting. They started 23 years earlier, and then they broke for a while, then they started in earnest again five years. Multiple sources indicate that when they finished, what they had built was an utter disappointment. People weeped, not because it was there, but because it was a shadow of what the Solomonic Temple had been. Um, this is an artist reconstruction of what they think Nehemiah's temple looks like, or Zerubbabel's temple. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the families, old people, I hate that word, who had seen the first house. They'd seen the first house with their own eyes. They remember what Solomon's temple looked like. Wept with a loud voice when they saw this house. Because it wasn't very impressive. Haggai. Who is left among you that saw the house in its former glory? Apparently there are a few. How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? You just kind of feel the disappointment, you know. 
We've come back. Some of the exiles are there. We've rebuilt the temple, kind of, sort of, but it's really disappointing. There's an artist depiction of this temple of Solomon and the temple of Zerubbabel. Can you understand why they might be? Now, the, newb the newbies who didn't see the previous one, it's probably not an issue. But for those who had seen it, it's just not quite the same. Restored Jerusalem is also a lot smaller. Um, Jerusalem pre-exile is somewhere between 20 and 40,000. And afterwards, it is four to five and perhaps only 1,000. You know where the city of David is? Just that you got the temple and that little narrow strip that comes down and the rest of it's Western Jerusalem. Nobody lives in Western Jerusalem until after the year 150. Just that little strip of land. So about, about 1,000 people, maybe 5,000 if you stack them. A century passes, 100 years. Things are rocking along, and now we get this new waves, two new waves. Ezra and Nehemiah arrive from Babylon. Ezra is going to bring the third group of exiles with him, and this is the last group we know of, unless, unless Nehemiah brought a group, which is not said. Dating Ezra is one of the most controversial issues in the Restoration um, traditional view is he precedes Nehemiah by 13 years, arriving about 458. Here's the problem. Ezra and Nehemiah, the Bible says Ezra, then Nehemiah. But if you look at what Ezra did and what Nehemiah did, it doesn't make any sense because even though Ezra comes first, some stuff that Nehemiah does is already done. What's with that? Nehemiah's last, so some stuff that Ezra supposedly had done has not been done yet. So some scholars say if you flip the two, it actually makes sense. The entire narrative fits, so we don't know. What we do know is, scholars say this, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is technical scholarly language, a mess. It, um, chronologically, it's a mess. It's all over the map. Uh, after this, in the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, this is a new king who is now, one of the reasons for the hundred years when nothing happens is we have a series of kings who didn't support the restoration. Artaxerxes comes to the throne, he wants to complete what Darius and what Cyrus had started before. Ezra is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Some of the people of Israel, some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers. He's bringing the whole shooting match. He's bringing a whole group of people who can run things. They go up to Jerusalem, and it was the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So that's, that's the date on that. His mission is to reconstitute the community around obedience to the Torah. Very famous passage. Uh, this is probably being done in the exile, but we don't have any records of it. So this is the earliest record we have of a worship service being built not on sacrifice, but on the reading and the interpretation of Scripture. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Since it's the one we still use. All the people had gathered together into the square. This is the famous Watergate passage. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Notice it's a book, a book. Traditions have been edited. This is probably the Pentateuch. This is probably what the Jews today use as the Torah. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. Apparently younger children aren't there. He read from it facing the square from early morning to midday. You thought Paul Rasmussen went long. <laughs> In the presence of the men and the women and those who understood and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The, Ezra, the scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform. Do we still use those? Okay. 
that had been made for the purpose. Far as we know, those were not being used pre-exile. This is probably something that comes out of the exile. Ezra opened the book on the side of the people, for he was standing above all the people. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord, their faces to the ground. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people said, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands. It's a bunch of Pentecostals. Okay. <laughs> the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book of the law of God with interpretation. World's first sermon. Okay. Interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's the origin of preaching. It didn't start out as uh, life application, which we do now. It started out as we're going to base our life on the law of God. So if you're going to do that, do you need to understand the law of God? And so what's the purpose of the interpretation to so they can get that? There's also a deal there that says well, they, they stood up. You got any Episcopalians and ex-Catholics here? It's that tradition that goes back to that. Okay. Another aspect of Ezra's mission it will be the complete separation of the returning exiles from the people of the land. This is this famous part where they, 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 if anybody married somebody from the other side, this is not a good thing. The officials approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands and their abominations. They have taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Nah, we don't do that. It's not allowed. Thus, this is, this is the first time we've ever seen this language. The holy seed has mixed itself. So now what does being Jewish mean? It's genetic. Okay? It's genetic. And by the way, all those people they're marrying with are the same holy seed. So it's not just genetic. It's genetic went into, that exile came back with us. It's our little group. But the people, the lands, its faithfulness, the officials and leaders have led the way. Okay, that's interesting. The officials and leaders have led the way. Our own leaders are marrying these people. When I heard this, I tore my garments, the mantle pulled my hair from my head. I said, appalled. Now, Nehemiah arrives in 445. We can date that with great accuracy. We know that's when he arrived. 70 years after the temple is finished, nearly a century after Cyrus allows the Jews to return, He's got a particular charter. He's sent by the king of, Bab of Persia to be governor. That's his title. He's the governor of the land. He's supposed to rebuild the city walls because we want to shore up that western border of the empire, make sure if somebody comes roaring out of Egypt, we can slow him down just a little bit. He's, uh, whether he brings another group of exiles, we don't know. It would make sense that he did. It's simply not mentioned, but you know, it is a possibility. Now, the restoration spans two centuries. Sixth century B.C., the 500s, Sheshbazzar, Zerubbabel. You've got second Isaiah, Haggai, and Zechariah active. Fifth century, 400s, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, uh, third Isaiah. Ezra may have come as late as 399. And if that's true, he's only about 60 years before whom? Not Jesus. Alexander the Great. We're walking down to that. By the end of the period, even though some exiles have returned, the temple's kind of sort of been rebuilt and the walls have been restored. Much of what they had hoped for, much of what the prophets had promised, simply has not happened. Uh, do they have political independence? No. Are they still occupied by foreign power? It's a you know, relatively benevolent, but it's still occupation. 
Do they have a Davidic king? No. Is the vast majority of Israel still in exile? Yes. The promises that, you know, the, the, the lion shall lie down with the lamb and all those wonderful images. Do we have that stuff? No. Prophecy itself has now ceased, according to the book of Maccabees. We have, we have Malachi coming about 4.30. He's it. These factors, along with some stuff we're going to look at the last four weeks, under the scenes, there's a profound change. The Jewish people's self-understanding of who they are as people of God and what it means to, to obey God is shifting. How they understand God theologically is shifting. How they understand worship of God is shifting. How they understand the future and hope is shifting. And the practice of their faith is shifting. We're getting we get new practices. It's going to shape us to come. Add to this, we got one man who's about one of the most dynamic forces of history, conquered the known world in basically three years in his early 20s. Okay, Phenomenal figure, Alexander the Great. Not only does he conquer, but he does something that no other conqueror has ever done. He decides he's going to impose all the way to India a blend of Greek society with the local society. You know what we call that? Hellenism. And Hellenism is going to become the dominant force for the next 500 years. And they're going to have to contend with that. The books of Maccabees and the Herodian period and the Hasmonean period and all that is all about Hellenism. Are we interfacing in Hellenism? And what's going on with that? It's going to transform everything. It's going to lead to a civil war. What you need to know about the Maccabean revolt is it's not non-Jews killing Jews. It's like our civil war. It's Jews killing Jews. Jews who want to be Hellenistic and Jews who want to slow that process down. So next week, Alexander the Great, the uh, Hellenistic period, and the Maccabean revolt. We've left